What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the football business podcast that goes behind the scenes and gives fans, industry experts, athletes, aspiring sports professionals, and more unrivaled insight into football, business, and how the beautiful game is evolving. Here is what I have lined up for you today. It's not about silo data, it's about everybody all trying to work together and bringing that forward for the benefit of the coaches and for the, ultimately for the benefit of the player. So if you can interact with someone that does provide some sort of insight, which either helps the player learn something or helps your team win, then ultimately that's what I, I think you need to be able to do. I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. So if you're locked in and listening, give the pod a follow and a five-star review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's putting us. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. So winning the league, let's just win this to appease the fans. How you doing today, David? Welcome to the What The Footy podcast. Thanks very much, Paul. I'm doing very well. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm good. Thank you. Great to uh, great to finally have you on the podcast, David. I know we've been trying to lock in this date, so uh, <laughs> great to speak with you. The first question I always ask all the guests is, what is football to you, a business or a sport, and why? It's a sport for me. I've grown up with football all my life, and I would always consider that, albeit I know that there is a, a huge business component to it. It wouldn't work without the business aspect of it, but fundamentally it's a sport. And I think if you take that part away, it doesn't become football anymore. No, that's that's super useful, David. Just sort of opening it all up. Obviously, across your career, you've you've worked in elite environments, high performance, performance analysis. Just sort of break down to me how you sort of define what your role was when you're working within different clubs and because I think a lot of the time the titles can can sort of differ from sort of club to club but how would you sort of sum up what what you did when when you're working within the SFA Celtic and Rangers yeah I think that's right Paul that, that there are a number of different ways in which the role operates within certain clubs and that's absolutely fine ultimately for you as a club you, you utilize the tool however as you want to use it I think if you're boiling it down, it comes down to delivery of performance insights and that can be achieved through a delivery of video and statistical data. And I think ultimately what you're trying to do is bring almost a degree of objectivity to it. People have a recollection of what they think happens within the game, but for a number of different reasons that can be fallible. It's not possible to take in everything that happens within the game. People will have an impression of things that have happened, but performance analysis does break bring a degree of objectivity to that through that statistical and video data. Now, I would also quantify that to a certain extent, or qualify that, I should say, by saying that there is a, a qualitative component to, to analysis as well. And we can talk about the number of areas in which analysis does work. But ultimately, you're trying to derive some performance insight to try and drive forward technical and tactical performance. And largely, your interaction is with the coaching staff and the players. Uh, I always think that performance analysis is a service that's provided to try and improve performance. And one of the ways in which that can be done by is improving the observation of what's happened within the game that can then be distilled down to the coaches and then distributed to the players. 
and and sort of broadening that from sort of like your perspective when you were in the role and and sort of when, when you were doing it what in particular were you were you really looking for because I think that the fascinating thing and interesting thing about performance analysis is part of what you were doing as well was obviously watching back the games for the teams that you worked with and so analysing your own players, internal players, analysing the opposition, maybe at, at times analysing transfer targets. You're also working with an academy setup and analysing players that you wanted to bring into the academy. So across all those sort of four different sort of spheres or, or, or pillars, what what in particular are you really, really looking for and how do those different sort of pillars differ from uh, from each other? So in terms of what you mentioned, there's there's four different elements that I say performance analysis really does tend to have an impact and it's the core of the role. So one is around opposition analysis. So as you would expect, it's about pre- preparing for your upcoming opponents. And that can be done in two levels. You, you look at it from a team perspective about how the team plays, so the shape, the patterns of play, that type of thing. But it can also be done on an individual basis. So if you're working primarily at first team, this is about performance because we're, we're looking to try and win games. It may be that some of the players within your squad want to know detail about their direct opponents, so you have to be able to go and provide that information. So, again, there's, there's a number of ways in which that can be done. It largely depends how the club wants it done and, and, and their process and their way of working. But that might involve watching video and maybe three or four games of, of previous games. But what you want to try and do as much as you possibly can, Paul, is get the games that are most relevant to you. So if you look at it in Scotland, for example, the way in which teams would play against Rangers and Celtic is different to how they play against Hearts and Hibs. So you need to try and find out games that is going to give you the most insight as to when you're going to go and face them. Similarly, within European games, you may want to just focus primarily on the European games, but also get a sense of, of maybe how they play at home. So that can be done on the basis of video, but the analyst may also be involved in potentially going to see the team live as well, just to get a, a certain sense of things. The, the benefit of watching live, of course, is that you, you tend to see most of most of the game. Now, you, you can access wide-angle footage, but going to the game just allows a slightly different perspective. And typically, the output of that will be some sort of statistical report, potentially, based on some of the key measures that you already have within your football club. So things that you, you would apply to you, if you want to then try and get some like-for-like insight, you may then try and bring some, some data, whether that's something you've created yourself or brought down from a third party. There might also be more of a, as I mentioned earlier on, particularly for opposition analysis, a bit more of a qualitative report. So something that we might speak around is around data. There's certain things that, that can be measured well, but sometimes it's useful just to go and see yourself and provide maybe something that the data doesn't capture. And then the, the video content is ultimately what the players are likely to see. But if you then think about four or five games worth of information, the players don't want to see that. So it has to then be distilled down. So they are a key role within the analysis process is to, to make sure that the, the analyst has an understanding of what information is relevant, then take that most relevant information to the coaching staff, and then collectively as a staff, then decide what you as you want to then show the players. So that's a, a very quick whistle stop to our opposition analysis. The, the other two or three aspects would be, I'll, I'll talk about one very briefly, would be around training analysis, and make sure that training is covered. And, and they might have a specific emphasis based on what as you're looking to do that week so it may well be that you're you have a two-game week and you have to turn around things quite quickly so if for example you're doing a, a relevant shaping session that may be something that you want to film and make sure you feed back to the players but typically most training sessions are now filmed and again something we might speak about later on is multidisciplinary interaction so you can look at the content within training so as a very basic example what's the ball rolling time within a particular session that may be something that can be analyzed 
there are two main crux are, are probably opposition analysis, aside from opposition analysis, I should say, or post-match analysis when you're actually just looking at your own performance. Uh, and this is typically based on the measures that you think are important to give you that insight as to what's actually happened within the game. At first-team level, it's, it's probably slightly different now. I think most people do have access to third-party data, so there'll be an external company that will primarily do most of the analysis, and then the role of the analyst then comes more around how you interpret that information then feed it back to the coaching staff and to the players. At academy level, you maybe don't have that luxury, particularly with the younger age groups, so it's therefore important that you, as the analyst, might have to do a lot of time undertaking the coding process. Uh, and just to give you some insight into that, Paul, coding is typically about describing events that happen within the game. So at a very basic level, you timestamp the event as to when it happens and then just describe what's happened. So to give an example, perhaps you can see a corner kick. So you might be interested in, and, and again, I'm just doing this at a very high level, it might be a corner kick from the right-hand side, it might be delivered by a particular player, it might be an outswing and delivery, and it might result in an attempt on goal. So that gives you some insight as to what, what has happened within that. So that's primarily what the, the, the post-match analysis involves, about answering questions about your performance to make sure that your interpretation of what's happened is then objectively defined by the information that you then gather through your analysis process. And then the final one just to talk about is, is live match analysis and live coding. And again, a good example that I always talk about here is if, if any of the listeners and viewers watch uh, Rugby Union, uh, if you see at the Six Nations when they pan to the coach's booth, you will see the analyst in front of the coach. So what they're effectively doing is coding that game live and providing live real-time information for the coaches to actually impact within the game. Now, what typically happens in football is the coach is, is in the dugout, of course, because he wants to have that connection with the players. But the, the analyst will typically be in the stand and will probably be mic'd up to the dugout and providing information based on something they see. So the analyst has the benefit, of course, of being able to review perhaps replays once the information is coded that can be reviewed quite quickly and that information can be fed back to the coaching staff. The analyst then may also have the opportunity to go down to the dressing room at halftime and maybe show the players some particular examples or maybe something that's been noticed within the numbers to try and feed that back to then make a tweet at halftime. So there would be the four main areas, opposition analysis, post-match analysis, in-game analysis, and also training analysis. No, that's that's super useful, David, and, and, and there's a lot to unpack there. And I think one of the, one of the follow-up questions I've sort of got just sort of from listening to what you were saying is, is around communication and receptiveness and some of the points you mentioned there about certain players wanting to know about players they're going to come up against and the opposition and understanding that and maybe improving their own game based on what you've seen in the game. From your time being within the role, how how have you seen players' receptiveness to, to taking on this kind of, this feedback culture kind of change and shift over time? Because you probably, you've worked over, over your career with established internationals and and players, players, players of a lot of pedigree. How, how receptive are they to you saying this is what you should have been doing in this game? This is how you can improve in improve in, in this aspect of your game. It's an interesting question, Paul, because I started my career probably longer than I care to remember now. So it's the best part of twenty years ago. Uh, and what I would say is that I think there is potentially, certainly when I started, there was a danger that analysis might have been perceived a little bit negatively. Uh, and it might have been used as a, as a tool to criticise players, but I think that's now changed. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I'm a firm believer in any walk of life. That I think hard skills get you the job, but soft skills keep you there and help you get promoted as well. And as, as much as analysis is, is quite heavily driven by technology, by data, by information, I think that it's really important to consider the human aspect of it 
And this is again, as I mentioned earlier on, with any walk of life, if you can communicate and good, create good connections with people, I think it makes the job an awful lot easier. So I mean that both in terms of coaching staff and also in terms of players. You get a sense of what information the players want to see. You get a sense of what information the coaching staff want to see. And I think that's vitally important that if you have that relationship, it, it does make your job a lot easier. You're able to preempt things and you get a sense of what people want to know and when within the cycle of your working week. What I would also say, going back to the academy, what you spoke about, I think there's a there's a bigger difference between the academy players and also from the first team players. First team is very much driven by performance. It's about winning games, so it's about providing insight to try and help them do that. Whereas I think the focus more academy level is, is on education. And even within that, there's probably different phases along the timeline, Paul. So your very youngest age group players are primarily just getting used to seeing themselves playing on video and it might be around helping them correct some sort of technical component within their game. But I think the younger players as well are more used to video content than maybe they were 10, 15 years ago when you, when you think of the availability of video. And we won't go into too many platforms, but you know exactly what I'm getting at. That Certainly my kids are, are constantly looking at things on YouTube, for example. So I think you're better off trying to embrace that and it's just a part of, of their sort of working day to a certain extent. What I think you do want to do though, with your academy players is year on year almost ramp that up a little bit. If, if your academy, the main focus is there is to try and help players for the first team and support the first team. Once you get towards maybe your under 18s or your under 21s or your PDP type phase, it's about trying to replicate what, what the first team do to a certain extent and just showing them that's part of your working week now and this is what's now required for you to become a first team player. I would also suggest now that it's very important to be aware of, as well as building relationships, being aware of people's different learning styles and, and the way in which they can take on information. So a lot of players don't like numbers, for example, but some players do like numbers. So again, if you can get a balance of the ones that do like the numbers, they may be the ones that are more interested in that. And, and that's certainly something I saw in, in the latter part of my applied career. Uh, when players are used to seeing data, so whether that's on TV coverage or whether that's playing some some video games, for example, they're used to numbers now and they like numbers uh, because it does give them some insight. Some players don't like that. Some players would much rather see video content. So it's, again, providing that balance to that. And, and I think there's also ways in which you can use analysis of the core of what it is you're doing, but also supplement that with other pieces of technology or just other learning aids. So, for example, you could use uh, a tactics board, for example, and then players can maybe come and interact with that and then try and put their point across in that way if they struggle to, to actually deliver it within words. There's also a way in which, because of the advances in technology, you can use players, or players can use an online tool and actually create some own analysis themselves, and that gets them involved in the process and helps their own understanding. So I think a lot of it comes down to, to getting to know the players and getting to know the coaching staff, finding out what works for them, because it's not a one-size-fits-all, and then ultimately trying to deliver something that works for, for that individual. Yeah, and, and even just building on that about working out what works for different players and, and, and sort of different managers, because obviously across your career, you've, you've worked and interacted with different managers at, at different clubs and obviously at, at SFA as well and, and different types of players. That that period of trial and error, is it a case of maybe seeing what worked well for one player, maybe trying to implement implement that at a new club and then seeing, okay, this isn't working here, I'm going to have to try a different approach. How does that period of trial and error in terms of how a certain manager likes likes to receive the data and likes to be communi communicated with or to change and sort of shift over time? Because as you sort of mentioned there, especially at that sort of first team level when you're in the day-to-day -day grind of playing Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, 
and there's so much information, there's so much technology and so much data out there. How do you really, in, in practical terms, really understand how to really use that use that process? Yeah. So I think fundamentally it, it does take time to build relationships with people. So it's worth investing in that time to, to get to know them. What I would also say as well is that I think an important skill, again, within any role, but particularly within analysis, is to try and take information from other sectors and from other areas. So I was very fortunate in the sense that my wife was, is a teacher, so I was able to draw on some of her experience to say, like, what is the best way for us to put forward this information? Uh, and I, I always, always found that to be quite a useful approach if you can maybe be, be guided by some of the things that are in maybe the academic literature, for example. Very fortunate in the sense that obviously I came through a university programme, not everybody's done that. So maybe people do it in slightly different ways. Um, I also think that the, the ability to build relationships with people helps you influence the process as well. So if there's a coach or a, a player that likes things to be done a certain certain way, I think it's very important, certainly at the outset, to provide that information in the way in which they want it. And once you've established that trust and that relationship with that person, it then gives you an opportunity to say, well, do you know what? There's maybe actually a better way of doing this. And then you can go and try something else. So I think if you're guided by a set of general principles uh, around the way in which feedback should be given to, to staff and to players, that's a great starting point. And then it's just about sort of little tweaks as you start to get towards uh, your, your developing your relationship with players. It's interesting you mentioned international football, Paul. That's something that's slightly different in the sense you don't get the same level of contact time with players. Um, for the vast majority of the time, they're with their clubs and then you're with them for quite a condensed period. So you don't get that same opportunity to, to build up that relationship and it might be a new player that maybe comes into the squad that you've never dealt with before. But again, that's where your general principles come to play because you will have some sort of notion as to how analysis is maybe conducted within the club, which then allows you to try and do it in a similar way. I always think that's quite important as well, that you have to provide a similar level of service to the player when they come in on international duty as they would expect at the club because it is now just part and parcel of, the, of their, daily working, their daily working day and their, and their week. Yeah, you literally just preempted my next question, which is going to be about the environment and the differences between being within a club setup and then going into the international setup. What are the sort of similarities and differences? And and did you feel as though when you're in that international setup, you're focusing maybe more on opposition analysis as opposed to some individual player analysis, just because of the nature of the limited sort of contact time with the players? Yeah, I think that's fair, Paul. Most of my experience with international teams was actually with the, with the younger age groups as well. The principles apply, they're the exact same principles. So there was a lot of time in between players, or in between games, I should say, sorry, so you don't get the same contact time with the players. What that does allow you to do is if you can get access to the footage, you can put more preparation time in. And the, we spoke about this with a club. You, you typically do have Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, or, or whatever it may be. You certainly don't have that with, with the internationals on a more regular basis, but when they are away on camps, it is quite intense. It's a game every two days. So the more preparation you can do beforehand, the better. And that would typically be if you if you were going to Scotland and England, they're both at the under-17 European Championships just now, for example, you can put quite a lot of effort into all three of your initial games, but you might primarily focus on the first one, for example, because once you get there, you might actually just do something a bit more recent because that's the other thing you need to consider as well. Your opposition might not play for six months and the score may be different as well. So you try and prepare as best as you possibly can. Again, go back to what I said earlier on, that the clubs are obviously doing this day, day in, day out. So in many ways, what you'll see there is best practice. So you want to try and replicate that as best as you possibly can within the international setting. And players do have a certain level of expectation about the information they would expect to receive uh, when, they do come, when they do come on camp. So the, the focus will be more on opposition. 
But then once you get into tournament, it's quite intense. In fact, it's very intense in the sense that your, your games come thick and fast and you're trying to, in a, maybe a four-team group, four you need to try and get as much information as you possibly can, as quickly as you possibly can with the games coming thick and fast. And you want to try and look at your previous game uh, and almost try and put that to bed and then move on to the next one. And I think a more general point, not just international football, but also club football as well is, um, and again, there's no right or wrong answer to this, Paul, it's about the emphasis that you place on things. So some teams and some clubs might just primarily focus on themselves and say, right, if we do this, we should hopefully win the game. Other teams and clubs might have more of an emphasis on the opposition and what it is they're going to do. But again, it's entirely up to you as, as a football club. That there is, a, I mentioned earlier on about the, the perceived negativity around analysis, and sometimes there will be a negative component to it, particularly if the performance hasn't been very good. So again, you have to think about that balance as well to see right, how many negative clips are we going to show versus positive aspects of it. Maybe just to try and reinforce something good, particularly when you have quick turnaround in games. You want to try and make sure the players are up for the next game. And if it's too negative, that may have an impact in the, in the next performance as well. So that's a really important skill for the analyst and also for the coaching staff to make sure that they correct appropriate content and it has the right balance to make sure that it, it gives the most impact to the players to help them with their next game. No, that's super useful. And I think even building building on that and linking into your to your new role, which is you working with within academia. I think I've spoken with previous guests about this. We're seeing more innovation and we're seeing more receptiveness to things like data and new ideas and research and innovation. How have you sort of seen seen that shift and change over time? And obviously since starting out within your career and now obviously moving into into the role in, in, in which you're sort of doing now. It's an interesting question, Paul, and I suppose to a certain extent I've had uh, an interesting perception on that because I've almost had like, two foots in the camp to a certain extent, so I've always tried to engage with academia because I think there's a lot that can be learned from there. I mentioned that earlier on. I don't think you can be so insular that you can't look to other sports or other industries to try and help you gain a, a performance advantage. So whether that's about educating a young player or about whether that's just a 1% margin that you can put in place at first team, so... I always think uh, tapping into academia is a good way of doing things, uh, just to try and give you some additional insight that you, you maybe didn't know anything about. Um, on the flip side of that, I think the clubs are far more receptive. Uh, if I think of the evolution of the role of, of the analyst in the 20-odd years that I was involved in it, it's, it's completely different. Uh, I know there'll be a lot of your younger viewers here that are about to go onto Google and try and find out what this is. But I still remember having to make VHS tapes, and that would just be so far away from, from what it is now. So... Um, I think the appetite is now to, to try and see what is available to, to to try and bring in to make things better. And what I would also say as well is that I think one of the key things with an analysis is ultimately it's about answering questions and thinking about different ways in which you can answer that. And, and I think a huge change that I've certainly seen is the way in which questions are now answered based on things like data and based on science. So an example that I always give to, to our students now is if, if you think, certainly when I started, it was quite spectator stats, as I would call them. So one way in which people might try and measure the effectiveness of a chance would be to look at something like shots on target. Whereas if you look at it now, nobody really speaks about that. It's mostly about XG, which is a far better way of answering the same question. So again, that's something that I think you see more and more often now. There's more innovative ways of answering these performance questions than you might have seen previous to that. And I think there is now more of an acceptance to say, well, do you know what? Some of these people actually out there can help us with this because they're more experts in this area than I am. And it's ultimately just about having the mindset to go and embrace that. But to be fair, I, I, I think more and more often now, coaching staff, sports scientists, analysts are far more open to that than they might have been in the past. 
Yeah, and I, and I think even even linked to some of the stuff you mentioned there, coaching staff, sports scientists. What was it like for you working within those sort of multidisciplinary teams to kind of drive performance forward? And and how did you how did you interact with those other 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 departments? I think it's fundamentally important now. I think if you look at the number of roles that are within professional football, you ultimately have to go and work with other people. There's certain disciplines that you probably interact with more often. The most obvious one from an analysis perspective is interaction with the coaches. That's that's you're probably your bread and butter of your interaction. Uh, certainly, I also think my, my latter roles, as you know, Paul, are more related to scouting and recruitment, and I think there's a natural synergy there. So whether that might be just in terms of producing some content for the scouting team to go and have a look at if there's a player that you maybe played against. And I was always quite happy for the analyst to come to me and say, look, we've seen a player that we've watched two or three times now that is worth looking at. So I think that's really important. As I said earlier, ultimately, I think analysis sits almost in the centre of it. I think it's just a service provider for uh, primarily the coaches and the players, but can also service other departments. So if you think from the medical point of view, if there's a player that's maybe injured, if you can provide footage of that injury quite quickly, that might help in terms of a diagnosis. So I think that's hugely important. Sports science was another area in which I used to interact with quite a lot, but that might be my bias because my background was in sports science. But if we go back to like training analysis, for example, a lot of the information that you can derive from analysis around ball rolling time, for example, might relate to the GPS and some of the other heart rate data that sports scientists are, are starting to bring together. And what we also saw laterally, I mentioned um, certainly within my previous role, the players were hungry for data. They wanted knowledge and they wanted information. So we then got to the stage where, and, and I think clubs are, are getting much better at this when you think of some of the performance management systems that are now in place. It's not about siloed data. It's about everybody all trying to work together and bringing that forward for the benefit of the coaches and for the, ultimately for the benefit of the player. So if you can interact with someone that does provide some sort of insight, which either helps the player learn something or helps your team win, then ultimately that's what I think you need to be able to do. And again, it goes back to your soft skills that I mentioned earlier on, Paul. I think it's hugely important if you have that ability to build relationships with people. And also I thought that it's important to learn from other people within your club as well. So we had a number of practitioners who are really at the top top of their, their field and it makes sense to try and learn from them and try and get some sort of insight. Because I think ultimately the better your knowledge of coaching, of sports science, of nutrition, of scouting, that will make you a better analyst because any knowledge you can glean will help you then try and provide some sort of insight to the players. And ultimately what I tried to do uh, from an analysis perspective, which helped from a multidisciplinary point of view, was almost work on the basis of like a service level agreement to say, right, this is what we're going to provide. This is what certain teams get. This is what it's going to look like. And this is when you're going to get it. And if we could go and help in other areas as well, we were more than happy to do it. So, so again, another example, probably more widely outside of the, the performance aspect of it is ultimately, um, this is one of the worst parts of, of the job and worst parts of academy football is that players sadly will be released. Um, so it might even be just in terms of producing content that might help them go and get another club. So I think analysis does interact with a number of different areas. The most close synergies are probably with coaching, scouting, recruitment, but it does have touch points with all your other multidisciplinary staff. And as I said earlier on, when you're working in, a high-performance football environment. You do have high-level practitioners who are very much experts in their field, and it's a great opportunity to work with them and learn and develop your own skills as well. Yeah, and I think just building on those touch points there, in terms of drawing up all those those different dots and connecting the dots to those different departments, was it a case of, like, who was the person overseeing and ensuring that those synergies and those relationships and those touch points exist? Was it the sporting director kind of driving it or somebody within the organisation? Or was it just a case of 
you you as an individual just just go in there for your own added benefit or because you saw the value in there and trying to do that. I think it's a combination of, of a number of those things, Paul. I mean, ultimately, your, your sporting director sets the tone for the whole football operation, so it, it is driven for the top. There's not any doubt about that. The academy director, because ultimately we're talking about the academy players, will have a, a huge say in how that how that's that's done. But I think one of the benefits, again, going back to club structure um, that you, you mentioned at the outset, I think that's quite important as well. So in my previous role, I actually sat on the academy management team as well. And that comprised essentially all the heads of department and it was driven by the head of academy. So we were very much all on the same page uh, from a strategic point of view, because I think that was really important. So I think it was driven from the top, but ultimately you as, as a professional, when you have your interaction with your different departments, that is part of your job and you want to try and do it as best as you possibly can. So there's certainly an organisational directive and direction of travel, but how that then maybe works in practice is, is up to the practitioners themselves because ultimately you are empowered to go, and, to go and actually drive this forward. You're brought in to do a certain job. You're deemed to be an expert in this area, maybe not the case in my case. But yes, they're deemed to be an expert, and it's up to you to go and drive it and do it as you as you see fit, based on your knowledge and based on the the capabilities and the skill set that you have and amongst your colleagues. No, that's awesome. Some wider questions before before we wrap up. I think over over the last few years, you've seen a lot of data and research into into the uh, into the idea of scanning um, the good old fashioned look over the shoulder. Yeah. But, but from your sort of perspective as a, as a performance analysis and working as a practitioner in sport, how, how have you sort of seen the the evolution of, of scanning for players? It's a very interesting question, Paul. So uh, I'm going to try and draw on something else. So when I did my PhD, I actually looked at it in terms of decision-making. And again, it was, it was a few years ago now, but I think scanning certainly is an important skill, but I think fundamentally what you're trying to do within your scanning is get the information that you need to help you make a decision. So the actual practice of scanning itself is part of a wider process, if you like. So we're checking over the shoulders to try and get you the information that you need from a visual perspective to then process that, to then try and make decisions. So yeah, I think it's an important skill, but it's also probably related to a wider point around um, a knowledge-driven visual search strategy within the game. So ultimately, I always describe it as similar to how you would go and drive a car you need to know what information is important to you and where you can go and find that information within the display and within the environment. So I always talk about this in terms of a roundabout. You know that you need to give way to the right, so your information is over in that direction. So that's what you need to take in place. But what you also need to be able to do is interpret that information, process that information effectively, and then make an effective decision based on the information you see. So scanning is important, of course it is, but it's part of a wider process for me. Uh, and I think the more efficiently you can scan, the better. So the quickly, well, more quickly you can process information and then turn that into appropriate action, the better. So it is definitely something that's hugely important and it's a fundamental part, quite a lot of the, certainly the academies that I've been involved in, it's a fundamental part of the curriculum, but it has to be part of that, that wider skill set and toolkit, if you like, to make sure that you utilise that information in an appropriate way within the game. No, that's that's super useful because uh, most weeks I'm watching Martin Odegaard and he's he's one of the best players to just like rather than just watching the game itself, just watching him and what he's doing and how he's how he's making decisions within the game. And I think another thing linked to that as well is like where I sit at the Emirates, uh, I sit at the lower tier, and that's typically the, the level that you see most managers kind of see the game from. But then when I went to go watch Paris Saint Germain, I was sat at quite a high level, upper tier, and seeing the game, you see the game from a different level. And obviously in rugby, the head coach sits uh, up in the stands to watch the game. And in football, obviously the coach sits at a much lower level. And um, 
and analysts are in the stand. I was listening to Gary Neville saying how Sir Alex Ferguson raised the level of his dugout for him to be able to see the game better. What's your views in terms of where the manager sits to kind of see and understand the game uh, pan out? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think that going back to what we said earlier on about the, the role of the analyst on, on the match day, I think in many ways they become the eyes of the of the, the coaching staff. Um, there was a, a move a, a, a few years ago, Paul, I don't know if you remember, where there was a member of the coaching staff that would sit beside the analyst and feed that information back. So it does provide a slightly different perspective. But I think most managers want to be in the touchline in order to, to have that connection with the players, and that's absolutely fine. So I think there's ways in which you, you can almost interact with that in a slightly different way. So while that's information that does come from the analyst via the radio, but also you can have a feed within the dugout as well. So if the manager does want to go and see something from a slightly different perspective, it's easy enough to go and do that now. Um, but you're, you're right, and it also links back to what I said around opposition analysis as well, that it sometimes is good just to go and see an opposition team live because it does give you a slightly different perspective. So if you can bring all those things together, I think it's very powerful. But ultimately, it just comes down to the individual choice. If, if there's a manager who wants to be close beside these players to try and get a message across and try and influence the game, then that's absolutely fine. If they want to take away their perspective, that's absolutely fine as well. But I think there are different methods now that almost give them the best of both worlds. No, for sure. And I'd love to know your opinion on this. Obviously, in the last few years, we've seen more and more teams, not even just within the Premier League, but across across all of all of England, playing out from the back more. We've seen the the, the increase, particularly in the last few years, of the inverted fallback in in the case of John Stones, the uh, the the centre back that moves into into midfield and and, and creates a, creates an overload in there. From an opposition analyst perspective, how would you sort of feed that information when you're watching these kind of games and seeing these seeing these sort of tactical tactical manoeuvres happen within games? Very interesting question, particularly when it's something that you've maybe not seen before. Um, so you, you might need to watch the two or three games just to make sure you're in your head that you're, you're absolutely happy about what it is they're doing. You, you can sometimes make a snap decision about maybe they're doing something when they're actually not. It's maybe just a particular phase, phase within the game. And what I would also do as well is that I think it's very important that you obviously have to have an understanding of the game, but you also need to know that your role within the overall setup, you're dealing with expert coaches who have got a high level understanding of the game. So now and again, I would always ask somebody to say, well, what do you think about this? So if you can put together some relevant clips of, of something that you've seen, you always seem to be confident in your ability to go and put that forward. But it's always good to get a second opinion just to say, right, what do you think here? Um, or, or what's potentially going on? Because the information has to be accurate, particularly at first team level when you want that to go to, to the players to try and help them. So from, from your own perspective, um, you, you have to trust your, your own eye and certain things that you see, but I always think it's good and useful to get a to get a second opinion on what's going on. But it, it, it's very interesting, isn't it, the evolution of tactically of what's happened in the last wee while? And um, I noticed something in, in Match of the Day recently where they spoke about the evolution of Manchester City that they've not only evolved the squad, but they've evolved the way in which they play. And you're giving a couple of good examples of that. So it's very interesting how people are always looking for slight different advantages as well so they don't become too stale and try and cause teams different problems that they maybe haven't posed in the past. Yeah, and I think it also goes back to your earlier point of knowing knowing which information to give and asking the right questions. Because even, even watching Arsenal on the weekend play Nottingham Forest, and it's like, you look at the lineup and then you see the actual game and you see Thomas Partey's in possession is playing is playing right back and then Kiwa, who's our, meant to be our left, one of our centre-backs, isn't that left back and... Granite Jacques is in more of an advanced position and 
Ben White is meant to be right back, dropped into centre back, and it's like, oh, hang on a minute. Like, there's, there's so much going on here. Like you're trying to understand what's the system, what's the formation. Um, Absolutely. And it's really interesting, isn't it, as well? Because uh, as much as I've tried to outline some of the process, that that's you almost talking in an ideal world, Paul, isn't it? So you, you go and watch the team five times. But what you also have to be aware of is that the other team will watch you five times and look at certain things that you do. So based on what you do, they might change their tactical scheme and their tactical setup. So they might just swing a surprise on you that you just weren't expecting based on your analysis. And again, that's a lot of the skill for, obviously, primarily for the coaching staff, but also for the analyst as well. Because if he's he or she's done quite a lot of the preparations for that particular game and they notice something that's maybe out of the ordinary, they need to be able to flag that up quite quickly to make any appropriate tactical tweaks within the game. Yes, just a couple more quickfire questions. A player who you've worked with in your career who was the most proactive and receptive to analysis and data? Well, that's a very good question. I, I think there's a few, and, and, and I'm, I'm probably going to give you, I'm not going to give specific names. I'm just going to talk about a certain team in particular. I think uh, the, the, the team that I worked with latterly at Rangers around the, the under-18s and the B team were, were certainly all proactive in terms of the information. But it goes back to what I said earlier on, Paul, about the shift. That's what they want. That's what they're used to now. So most of the younger players do, do want that type of information. So it would be quite difficult for me to single out one. Um, more kind of first team level, um, probably earlier on in my career. Um, I'm just trying to think of the best example of this. Um, it, it was quite early on within the infancy, so some of the players weren't quite sure to interact with it, but definitely more of a shift. In. So rather than individuals, I'm going to talk about a shift within the, the overall um, utilisation of, of analysis and certainly the younger players are, are more hungry for it than the first team players that I work with in the early part of my career. No, for sure. And, and even looking at some of the managers that you would have worked with, did you ever interact with like Walter Smith, Neil Lennon, Tony Mowbray, Gordon Schreck and a, a, any of those guys? Yeah, so uh, a few of them. And yeah. and, and, I, and again, they've all got different ways in which they want to, to utilise the, the, the video. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, those are some of the examples that I spoke about earlier on. Some some were very good. Some uh, were a bit less, uh, utilised it less, shall we say. But that's when, again, your relationships become key. You're not trying to push something if they don't want to use it because ultimately, as I said earlier on, my view is that analysis is a service provider and, and you want to try and provide that service. But if you can influence them in some way, then then you should try and do that. Uh, but again, what you want to try and do is make sure you give the information to the coaches who then turn, turn it into the players. So if that's only one or two little clips that they need, that's fine. If that's a five-minute video, that's fine. It's just ultimately whatever it is they want. But you should try and influence that as best as you can. And again, going back to what I said earlier on, I think it's not easier. Easier is the long term. But I think there's more scope to have an impact with younger players right the way through their progression because when you're doing dealing with your, your elite first team players, it's very much an on-demand service or part of how the coaches want to run. So what in terms I mean by that is if somebody comes to you and wants information, you give them it, whatever that, that form wants to be. Um, so the, the, the emphasis probably for me is very much on trying to influence people but give them ultimately what it is they want. No, that's super useful. And an opposition player who you analysed and you just thought, wow, wow, what a player. <laughs> oh, there's, there's been a few of them, but I'm going to give more of a scouting example and it's quite an easy one to do. Uh, I remember the first time I saw Jude Bellingham live, I just went, wow. So um, I'll, I'll stick with that one, Paul. No, top player. I've seen I've seen Drew play a couple of times. I, th I think it was it was really interesting about his maturity level. I saw him play for England under 17, so he's still relatively young, but he just looked like a, a first team player, just the way in which he went about his business, so composed and his level of understanding along with his technical ability was as good as I'd ever seen for a young player. 
No, that's awesome. And the last question I ask all the guests is what the footy needs to change or happen within your space? Um, so, uh, again, I'm, I'm hopefully not going to be too controversial in this, uh, but it has got better. Um, one thing that did annoy me or great on me a little bit was the perception of analysis, particularly at the when it's infancy when I started. It was very much seen as being the IT guy, the video guy, but when you see some of the practitioners that are involved in it, they're far more than that, and I think the, the impact they can actually have, they deserve uh, a bit more than the, the tag of the video guy and the IT guy. Now, I do understand that that is part of it, but that's that's what needs to change, in my opinion. The, the perception of the role has to change, but to be fair, Paul, it's getting better. No, David, thank you for your time, and thank you for featuring on the What The Footy podcast. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you very much for asking me along, and I look forward to seeing you at University of Stirling as well. No, cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you loved it. And if you did, give the pod a follow and a five-star review and tell a friend to tell a friend. See you in a fortnight for the next episode. Let's go. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school. Now it's a putting ass. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that. But then also, they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. So winning the league, let's just win this to appease the fans.